What would you think if your significant other asked to have a relationship with another person, quote, on the side? I think most of us would see that as a huge red flag, but Michelle Young didn't. Maybe she was so used to her husband's immaturity and callous disregard for her feelings that it just seemed like business as usual. If she'd only taken another look and seen the man she married for who he really was, maybe she could have escaped what he had planned for her. Welcome to another episode of The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison. Join me for another captivating true crime story where physical, spiritual, and emotional safety takeaways are waiting for us. If you are listening, I believe you have a unique calling to become a different kind of PI. Not a typical private investigator, but a person of impact. Discover how you can easily step into this role and make a profound difference in someone's life. This is Season 4, Episode 24. Our book this week is Murder on Birchleaf Drive, the true story of the Michelle Young murder case. I'm excited to bring you our guest, my friend Jill McCracken, who is also the host of the Murder Shelf Book Club podcast. Right now, let's dive into our story at the intersection of faith and true crime. Pregnancy should be a time for a woman to be looking forward with excitement and joy. For Michelle Young, her second pregnancy was filled with stress and tension. Even though her husband Jason was a good dad to their two-year-old daughter Cassidy, he still hadn't matured out of his hard partying college ways. Michelle was trying to build a life with him in a lovely part of Raleigh, North Carolina, but the marriage was becoming strained. Their fights were growing more frequent and often centered on Michelle's desire to have her mother live with them and be the children's nanny once Michelle returned to work. Jason was violently opposed to this idea. In early November of 2006, Jason left for an overnight business trip, the same as he'd done many times before. But this trip was going to turn out to be a bit different. He left Michelle's sister Meredith a voicemail asking her to run over to his and Michelle's house to pick up some papers off of the printer. He said he'd been planning to get Michelle a late anniversary present and he'd printed out some descriptions of expensive purses. He didn't want Michelle to see them and ruin the surprise. Unfortunately, Meredith was the one who got a horrible surprise. When she went into the house to pick up those papers, she found Michelle beaten to death. Her niece Cassidy was unhurt and Meredith quickly called 911. But it was apparent that Michelle and her unborn son were already beyond anything medical help could do for them. After staying one night in a hotel, Jason was planning to stay at his mother and stepfather's house after he finished the rest of his sales calls. They were the ones who had to give him the awful news. As his sister, brother-in-law, and mother drove with him back to Raleigh, he remarked that with Michelle dead, the loss of her income meant that he'd probably lose the house. Now, is that what you'd be worried about if you were in his shoes? Before they got back home, Jason's friends had found an attorney to represent him, and he declined to speak with the police. Authorities had found no signs of forced entry at the house, and nothing was missing other than Michelle's wedding and engagement rings and a framed wedding photo. The second story of the home was saturated with blood, and it showed how much Michelle had endured, with repeated blows to her head and even an attempt to strangle her. Jason was refusing to talk to authorities, but they were still going to investigate his possible involvement. Investigators should always start with the people closest to the victim, even if it's just to rule them out. The night Michelle had been killed, 
Jason had stayed at a hotel nearly 170 miles away from their home. Investigators had to ask themselves, was it even possible for Jason to have killed his wife? Modern technology is such a huge help to investigators. Security cameras at that hotel showed that on the night of November 2, 2006, Jason arrived around 10.50 p.m. and used his magnetic key card to access his room at 10.56. Near midnight, cameras in the hall captured Jason near the front desk and then showed him heading toward a side exit. If he was Michelle's killer, that would leave him seven and a half hours to drive between two and a half and three hours home, murder Michelle, and then drive the two and a half to three hours back. Definitely doable. At about five in the morning on November 3rd, a hotel employee discovered that a landscaping rock had been wedged between an exterior door and the door jamb. Just a few feet from that door was a security camera, which strangely had been unplugged. Investigators also found a gas station about 50 miles from the hotel where the clerk remembered a white man paying for cash to fill up his white SUV, an SUV just like Jason drove. And this happened in the very early morning hours of the 3rd. The clerk identified Jason from a photo the police showed her. Jason's cell phone records also gave investigators a treasure trove of information. Some of it about a woman that Jason had been in near constant contact with in the month before Michelle's murder. And that woman wasn't Michelle. After Michelle Young had been laid to rest, a battle began between Meredith and Michelle's mother, Linda, and Jason and his family, and it was all about them being able to visit little Cassidy. Jason wasn't very accommodating. As aunt and grandmother, Meredith and Linda had no legal rights of custody or visitation. But if Jason were ever charged with Michelle's murder, they could challenge his fitness as a parent. It had been nearly two years since Michelle had been murdered, and there was no telling if charges would ever be brought against Jason. The women were also livid that Jason was potentially going to receive $4 million of life insurance proceeds. They knew it was time to take radical action. Linda, as the administrator of Michelle's estate, filed a civil suit to have Jason declared to be Michelle's killer under North Carolina's Slayer Statute. Now, if she was able to get that done, Jason would not be able to collect on Michelle's life insurance policy, and that might give Linda and Meredith what they needed to be able to fight Jason for custody of Cassidy. You'd think that an innocent man would fight this with every resource that he had. Instead, Jason refused to respond to the lawsuit at all, and a default judgment was entered against him. Meredith and Linda could now publicly call Jason Michelle's killer. They wasted no time in suing for custody of Cassidy. Rather than have to answer any questions under oath, Jason actually gave up custody of his young daughter to Meredith. But that didn't help. He was swiftly indicted for the murder of his wife, Michelle. I promised you last week that this week I would share part of my new book that's going to be coming out in just a couple of weeks called In God We Trust, Everyone Else Gets a Background Check. This is the introduction. This book isn't about making you distrust everyone. It's about learning to trust the right people and being cautious with the rest. It's also about strengthening our trust in our loving God. Picture yourself facing tough times and someone advises you to seek solace in the Bible verse that says, this too shall pass. Shockingly, such a verse doesn't exist at all. Although many verses convey similar messages, this specific verse just isn't there. 
You bought into it because you felt that I was trustworthy. And don't worry, I am. Consider this a mini life lesson. In this book, I want us to investigate how to properly evaluate people's level of trustworthiness so we can keep ourselves, our loved ones, and our communities a little bit safer. I hope you'll be on the lookout for the rest of the book when it's available very, very soon. Now let's join my guest, Jill McCracken, host of the Murder Shelf Book Club podcast. We're going to dissect the clues that we've found so far. Jill will be back next week as we learn more about Jason's first trial. Yep, you heard me right. His first trial. I am super excited to be recording with my dear friend that I met at CrimeCon years ago. We won't say how many years ago, but Jill McCracken. We've actually volunteered on some cases together, and you have such a fascinating background with all the studying you've done with statement analysis and and psychological insights and backgrounds and probably stuff I don't even know about. So what what else are you really honing in on on this particular case? Thank you for that. Those very nice words. It's a pleasure knowing you all these years. What a vast improvement to the quality of my life when Lori came into it. Oh. But in this case, oh, what a sad case and what an unnecessary case. I just think it didn't have to be. It just seemed like the the cart was starting to roll down the driveway and people watched it. And it's just painful to see that as it's happening. It just, it was quite the story. So I was really interested in telling it with you. It was very, very, it it was one of those that you kind of think, I've heard this a million times, but then also this is unique. And I think so many women's stories are like this. And, you know, we're, we're certainly not trying to victim blame We're not trying to blame people around her, but I know that you approach these topics on your own podcast, Murder Shelf Book Club. If you haven't listened, make sure you do. But we want to look at these stories and see what lessons we can take from them to apply in our own lives, in our loved ones' lives, to hopefully maybe catch something before this cycle repeats itself. Exactly. It's not about blaming. It's about awareness. There are ways that you can look at what happened here and think, oh, okay, it's just a young couple and, you know, they're going through growing pains. But there were red flags and nobody identified them. So if we can help to raise awareness of these flags, then maybe we help somebody. I made some notes on Mm -hmm. some of the ones that, that just really jumped out at me. You know, I worked in a domestic violence court for some time and I saw this kind of stuff a lot. He threw a TV remote at her. He would say vulgar things about her in front of others. And it it almost seemed like he was doing it to make her uncomfortable. He carried excessive, and I mean excessive, life insurance on her. Every young couple needs it, but you only need so much. He was verbally abusive. He had punched a hole in a wall when he got angry. And then, of course, we find out later on in the story that he had attacked a previous girlfriend, which is why I say, in God we trust, everybody else gets a background check. You need to know. You need to know things about the people in your life. You do. You do. Here was also a record of his immaturity, the party games that he would play. He would go to the tailgating parties, get so inebriated, he never made it into the stadium. 
to cheer for this team he loved so much. Well, are you still doing that when you're married with a child, another one on the way? What is that? And I understand that, you know, sometimes opposites attract. Sure. But there was a, a quote in the book that I wanted to remember to share. Although they didn't fully appreciate it at the time, both their engagement and their marriage had been constructed upon a foundation of unexpected circumstances rather than genuine love and commitment. So I think they were skipping a few steps and missing a few beats from the very beginning. And her mother did bring up a point. She, when she spoke to him, she said, look, if you don't love her, don't get married. She will survive. She will be okay. Exactly. And I know, you know, she was pregnant. And so I think that put a little extra pressure, whether her just on herself or she felt society was putting on pressure that they should be married. And yes, I think children thrive better in a two-parent household, but not an abusive household. Exactly. I, I agree with you. I think she had a vision for what she wanted in life. And she was moving forward, following that dream, checking the boxes as she was able to plan and complete each task, was dating him for two years. So it's not like they just met and had some kind of, you know, very brief relationship. They were involved with each other for two years. But at that point, had she not gotten pregnant, would he have proposed? No. Yeah, that's a great point. And I understand like you said, when you, you have this, this fantasy, this plan, how you want your life to go, it's hard to stop and say, okay, wait a minute. Is this really a healthy plan? Is this really a realistic plan? Do I need to make some adjustments to my plan? But I think that that's where those of us that are around a young couple or even a middle-aged couple any kind of couple that's that's just kind of wanting to start a life together, we need to be able to speak some wisdom to them in love, of course. Nobody's going to take it well if you say, hey, that guy's a jerk, stay away from him. <laughs> but if you could point out some things that, you know, hey, he still has a, a trait that we might see in a teenager and he's in his middle 20s. Exactly. Those kind of I, things. Yeah. It, the level of immaturity was just glaring. That's one of those red flags that I was talking about, that he was he was not ready for responsibility. He has a little girl and he wants to go play on multiple sport teams after being a salesman. So he's traveling and he's away from home. So it's not like he wanted to come home and be with his wife and child and his family. He's still, I'm on the team. I want to go play basketball. I want to do what I want to do. He was not part of the family. He was part of the team. And there has to be a, I believe when you get married, there's a, a shift where you become the couple and then the family and you cleave to each other. Yes. I don't think I'm unusual, but I think that's the process. She didn't really do that either. Who was her confidant? It wasn't her husband. It was her mom. Yep. I don't mean to tear down mother-daughter relationships because, you know, they are incredibly important, but you must confide in your spouse. And I think that maybe that kind of brings up another point. I wonder if that shows a lack of trust. I believe so. I think maybe deep down she knew. 
she knew he was not the most trustworthy person. And so when she really needed advice and support and all the things you hope to have in a spouse, she knew he was not going to provide any of that. She had to ask him, don't go to the game. Take me with you to the wedding. They're going to a wedding and he wants to ride with the guys. You know, you figure out how to get to the wedding yourself. I'm going to go golf. No, honey, honey, we're invited to a wedding and and this is, you know, our, our dear friends and we need to go together as a couple. He's not, he is not coupled with her. He's really not. And I'm I'm sorry, but again, another red flag. Are Are you in this with me? Are we a team? Are you my confidant? Can I talk to you about problems that I'm having? And the answer was no. I have another saying that I like to tell people. When someone tells you who they are, believe them. Yes. He may not have said in words, hey, I'm pretty narcissistic. I'm shallow. I'm really all about me. You know, nobody is really going to come up and tell us that in those, those kind of words. But they tell us through their actions. All those things you just described. Mm -hmm. When someone shows you how your life is going to be, you have to stop and say, am I willing to accept that? Because, I mean, we all know somebody and probably a lot of us have been this person. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, they're going to change when we're a couple. They're going to change once we're married. They're going to change once they're a parent. They don't. Yeah. In a nutshell, they just don't. I do believe people can change. But it takes really Herculean efforts where I think you need you need therapy to support the desire for change. I think you have to really completely alter the situation and move into a different mindset. And he just moved into a different house. That's a great way to put it. He he did. I I I mean, that's who the guy was. You know, he just switched houses and was behaving exactly the same. And he gave no indicators. You know, we never read about any big loving speech where he said, you know, I'm in this, it's you and me and our children, and we're going to have that home that you wanted and the white picket fence. And no, he wanted to go off to the basketball game. He's still getting drunk on the weekends and is coming home inebriated. You know, he, he worked hard. He knew he needed the job, but he had the job before he was married and behaving in an irresponsible way. And he just kept continuing in an irresponsible way. There was, there was no therapy. There's, there's no medication. You know, maybe there was something he needed on that front, whatever it is, but it, you need a tremendous amount of psychological support to seriously change. You know, people say, I'll change. I, I'm, I, I'm done. I'm never going to do that again. No. What are you doing to make that happen? Yeah, he didn't even really do that, that, that I picked no. up on. He was just no. like, no, you need to change. She was the problem. Mm-hmm. She wanted to go to marital, marriage counseling. And he's like, good, you need it. Well, you can't fix a marriage by yourself. He didn't even acknowledge there was a problem. He was fine. Mm-hmm. I'm living my life and I'm doing what I want to do. If someone is not blending their life with you, they don't want to. You have to listen to that. And I know it's heartbreaking because the heart wants what the heart wants. Mm -hmm. But at some point, we have this marvelous brain 
And we need to really use it and see where we are going. And if we're having trouble with that, I hope we have people around us who can, hey, what happened with that? You know, raise those questions to us. Suppose my daughters were in a relationship like that. Would I say something to them? Oh, I hope so. It may not be a a fully pleasant conversation, but you also don't go in and you attack the person either. Ask questions. Hey, that thing that happened, like what happened there? Yeah. You know, oh, did you go to the wedding together? Well, why wasn't it fun? Oh, well, what did you think when he got so drunk and, and couldn't do anything? Raise the awareness, ask the questions. You don't want to alienate anybody, but you can do it in a way where you're not attacking because then you're going to have negativity hitting negativity and you're just going to blow up the situation. And I think on our parts, if we're the one in those situations, give people permission to speak truth to you. Because a lot of times people feel like, ooh, if I say something, I will damage my relationship with this person I'm trying to help, this person whom I love. And you know what? If people you love are telling you negative things, it's not to hurt you. They love you. Yes. They are trying to help you see something that it's obvious to them you're not seeing. And speaking of not seeing things, I want to get your take on on this part of the book because I felt like it kind of hinted around something but never really came out and said it. But they made the point, and, and we'll get into part of this a little bit later on, but he'd had an affair with someone who was younger than him. He had known her since she was six, and he was, mm-hmm. I'm assuming, like a teenager or young 20s. He was a camp counselor during the summer, and she was a young camper. I almost got a feeling that there was maybe not a physically inappropriate relationship between them while she was still a minor, but there certainly seemed to be some emotional entanglement that didn't seem normal to me, given the difference in their ages and the the period in their lives that they were in. Because, you know, a 15-year age difference when you're 45 and 60 is a whole lot different than when you're maybe 6 and 21. Yes. My belief on that, my opinion is that he was abusing that relationship psychologically because he he could. Somebody has that puppy crush and they're looking at you with those big, big eyes and you're the counselor and you're you know, you're directing what's happening today and what we're doing. And, you know, you're in a position, it's camp counselor, I understand this, but you're still in a position of authority. Mm -hmm. And he took advantage of that. And he liked it. He liked that. Yeah, that just creeps me out. Yes. So, you know, that's a little bit different topic, but just kind of an aside here for parents who have got kids going off camp this summer. Yes. You need to let them understand Yes, I hope you get along great with all your counselors, but you have a counselor relationship. You know, they're helping you with camp Mm -hmm. activities. This is not something that probably should get really personal. And if you have a counselor that's trying to make it very personal, you might want to tell another leader at your camp. You know, these are discussions we need to have with our kids because they don't understand at their age, they don't get that. They're just like, oh, this is a cool person who's being nice to me. They don't and know be- that they have yeah. to stop and evaluate, why is this person being so nice to me? Exactly. Grooming starts at you know all ages. It's mm-hmm. frightening, but it's true. And even the camp counselor, 
I, I mean, think of the horror stories we hear about what happens with a child running into doctors, for goodness sake. I mean, mm -hmm. there's been all the recent headlines on, on what doctors have been doing to our athletes. But for our kids, they have no understanding of how this all works. You don't want to terrify them, but you want to just say, hey, you know, this is a camp relationship. Certainly, if you hear from somebody, if somebody texts you or something or messages you, that should not be happening. Oh, no. You know, we have to, we have to be so careful. Cell phones. Oh, uh, thank goodness I didn't have cell phones when I was raising my own kids. Right. I think it is the bane of our existence in social media. It is really doing kids damage and people take advantage of this. And it makes me just wonder how much Michelle knew about him staying in contact with at least one former camper. Because I used to work with an organization and we had kids camps. And one of the things that we talked about was you don't need to still be involved in their lives after camp's over. That sounds mm -hmm. cold and harsh, but you're just, you're putting up common sense boundaries to avoid I, what ended up happening to this poor woman. I taught for 30 years and I taught high school students and sent many of them as adults now off to college. How many did I keep in touch with on Facebook? None. Right. I'm not their friend. I was their teacher. That's and, creepy. And that, it comes back <laughs> to boundaries you? again. Yes. It really does. So find out when you're getting involved in a romantic relationship, what has that person's other relationships been like? Do they know how to set appropriate boundaries and respect other people's? I wonder if Michelle knew about his previous engagement. That's a fascinating which, question. Which it, it clearly ended. It did not end well. And he rips the engagement ring off after attacking her, rips yes. that engagement ring off. That to me was a huge red flag, number one. But also when we get into the trial, Michelle's wedding rings were missing. Wedding he rings that she never took off. Uh-huh. He repeated that behavior. And it wasn't as if he was making this out to be some huge burglary. That's what he does. He pulls the rings off like that. And Lord knows where it wound up, but that's what he did. Well, they're his. Well, they're both his. Yeah. The fiance was his and his wife was his. Mm -hmm. And those and rings was, were his. And that, that's yes. kind of what I took away from it. Mm -hmm. I gave them to you. I take it back. Remember, he also said, I am done with Michelle. I'm done. And we are done with this part one of Murder on Birchleaf Drive. So make sure you join us. Next week, we'll get into the first trial. Yes, just the first one. And we'll get some more of Jill's wonderful insights into the psychology, the criminology of what's going on. So you are not going to want to miss it. Now, let's check out this week's Bible passage. The Bible passage I want us to look at this week is from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. This is the contemporary English version translation. You can be certain that in the last days, there will be some very hard times. People will love only themselves and money. They will be proud, stuck up, rude, and disobedient to their parents. They will also be ungrateful, godless, heartless, and hateful. Their words will be cruel. 
and they will have no self-control or pity. These people will hate everything good. They will be sneaky, reckless, and puffed up with pride. Instead of loving God, they will love pleasure. Even though they will make a show of being religious, their religion won't be real. Don't have anything to do with such people. Sometimes we can have some trouble reading people because no one is 100% good or 100% bad. But Paul is teaching us in this passage the red flags that we need to be on the lookout for. Jason Young certainly exhibited a lot of the behaviors from this passage. He showed by his actions that he loved himself and money more than he loved Michelle. He made rude and hateful comments to her in front of others on a regular basis. Everyone who knew him saw his reckless and impulsive side. For our own safety, Paul tells us so plainly to have nothing to do with people like this. And please hear me, I am not blaming Michelle. No one ever deserves to be treated the way Jason treated her. In telling her story, I hope that we can all find some takeaways to apply to our own lives and, more importantly, to share with people that we love. Even if we aren't in the kind of physical danger that Michelle was, we still don't want someone with such negative traits to influence our behavior or our children's. Our emotional and spiritual safety is too precious to let them be under constant attack. Now, if you need some help in this area, please reach out to me privately and I will help you get connected to resources that can help you. If you liked this episode, be sure to check out some earlier ones. I've had so many amazing guests and you will not want to miss their insights. You can also help someone else begin their journey as a different kind of PI, a person of impact, when you share the episode and when you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and give me a five-star rating and a nice review. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time.